You're listening to the Audio Nowcast, sponsored by API. Now from the Nowcast Network Studios, here's Mike. Hey, welcome to the Audio Nowcast. My name is Mike Rodriguez. And before we get going, let me introduce the guys. Over here on my right, we've got the one and only Bobby Osinski. Bobby. Hi, Mike. Hi, guys. Hey, Bobby. And uh, next to him, actually across the table, we've got our good buddy, Brandon Birdside. What's up, Mike? Brandon, it's good to see you, brother. Back from the dead. I know. It's really good to have you here. Good to be here. Next to Brandon, we've got Mr. Nick Peck. Well, good evening, Mike. Hey, Bobby, Brandon, Rob, how are you guys doing? It's What's good to up? see you. Hey, doing great. And uh, cool. we're going to be talking a little bit more about Nick in a second because uh, uh, I got to go to his studio. So that was pretty awesome. <laughs> it was fun. And finally joining us all the way from somewhere, somewhere on this planet, New York, Austin, somewhere. Abu Dhabi. I think it's Abu Dhabi. <laughs> the one and only Mr. This is show 150, Rob Arbiter. Rob, how are you doing? everybody. I am joining you from lovely, not sunny New York City. Nice. How's uh, partially, how's... partially not sunny because it's nighttime, but partially not sunny because it's been heavy thunderstorms. Well, that's cool. Are you in the city? city? I am right in the middle of the city, right near Times Square. Oh, that's awesome. Awesome. Yes, it's a very clean, relaxing place. I really like it. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You don't have to go to Bubba Gump, just so you know. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> I have not. <laughs> well, hey, guys, this is show 150. And, uh, man, it seems like it's been forever since we've done a podcast. And there's just been a ton of stuff that's happened and just a ton of gear that has been bought and a ton of things that uh, – changes that have been made. So um, let's kind of dig right into it. Um, really quick, right off the top, uh, I want to talk some um, gear because uh, I just flipped over pretty much all my computers. And when I flip over all my computers, that's a lot of flipping. <laughs> and, um, and you know, I, I added more Windows machines to, to the flock. And I, I just tell you, you know, I am going to be getting a new Apple. Um, I'm waiting a little bit. Trash can? Um, probably not. I'm probably going to see what they're going to do with their MacBook Pros because for me, it's all about mobility since I mix it a lot of different places. Um, but, um, but funny you should say that um, I'm working on Martin. He's finally, you know, he's commissioned to go to the next level. So we're putting together a, a system for him based on the, on the trash can. And, uh, that's a beast of a computer. I yeah. will say that. Yeah, I will say if, if I'm going with a desktop, I'm going with that. Having said that. They're tiny and they're quiet and they're fast. Right. Laptops, I think Apple, you know, they cannot hold a candle to some of these Windows machines that are out there. I mean, they're doing some amazing things with striped M SATA drives, you know, that are striped as a RAID that are blazing fast. I bought a I bought a computer and I think I talked about this a little bit last time, but you know, it has two 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 fifty six um M SATA drives um striped, and that's where your programs go. So it's five twelve. Then it has 7,200 RPM terabyte drive um, also in it. It's thin. It's 17 inches. It's, it's just it's less than an inch thin, and it costs less than two grand. Mm. And it has what was important for me, a nice video card so that I can play games in. It has the 870 from NVIDIA. And for two grand, it's just amazing. It really was amazing, uh, the value of that. Put that up against 
I picked up the Surface 3 because, you know, I really like the Surface and I like the whole tablet, especially on Windows. It's just a great, thin, fast little computer. I was showing Bobby because I actually have it. It's just fast. It's snappy. Touch is really good. And you know me. I was really skeptical on the whole touch thing. You know, I was not, you know, I did not embrace it. But as I'm working with it more and more, it's amazing how handy it is. Now, I don't think I'd ever use something Raven-esque because um, I just need to see the knobs and I need to, I need to, I need a little bit more precision to that. But I could totally see me using like the smaller Raven, you know, where you get a lot of touch functionality, but you can still have like a 1608 or a box in front of you or something like that. So technology, it's changing, it's, it's converting. And even, you know, the biggest thing about this is if you're an Apple fanboy, um, just don't be. I mean, just open your open yourself up to to just using the best hardware that will suit you at that time, because that's the only way we're going to get innovation from all companies. You know, you want to push Apple, stop buying Apple, get something else. Let Apple kind of kind of catch up to it, because right now the MacBook Pros they're looking a little long in the tooth, and I'm just looking forward to seeing what's coming down the pipe. Um, and uh, right now, I heard, what I, I heard that. Uh I heard today that Microsoft invited, what, 12,000 employees to innovate and find new careers. Is that true? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Hold on. Right now, this is like a cosmic shift from like years ago, isn't it? <laughs> Rob used to be Mr. Windows boy. <laughs> that is but, true. But I, I tell you, you look at like um, – you look at like uh, – Fruity Loops, you know, FL Studio. That's such a mature program from where it started to where it is right now. It's a it's a dream to to use that on a touch screen and I don't know. It's just technology is changing so fast and there's all these waves. Um you know, it just really shows you if you hold an just have an open mind, you know. I've I've been getting grief from some of my Mac friends, you know, saying, "Hey, why are you getting Windows and stuff like that?" It's like, dude, I just got to go – I go where the technology kind of leads me, you know, and, and I'm not beholden to anybody. I will absolutely flip a, a switch and go someplace a different direction if it serves me better. I will say tablet-wise, I like the Surface 3, but I also love my iPad. I think the app universe that Apple has cannot be matched, absolutely. you know. But that's the great thing about using like the Surface is you don't have to use – Apps you can use the real programs, so there's a there's a benefit there. So, man, I'd love to see something like a like a Surface Three for Apple. I mean, I think that would be just amazing to be able to use their their programs on something like that, and not not an iPad. Because even with you know all the new um, Audio Bus Two and all the interconnectivity, it's still not the same as being able to use VST plugins on a on a sequencer and have it, you know, that kind of control. So times are changing. Things are going. I know, Rob, you just did a mix with headphones, right? Yeah, <laughs> on not a, by choice. Uh, on a laptop. <laughs> how, was, yeah, uh, how, choice. how was that? Um, well, if you don't mind doing a mix that you can't trust, it was great. I mean, uh, I don't know. I ended up having you, Mike, and some other friends all listen to it and tell me how it sounded on speakers. <laughs> <laughs> but I got it as close as I could in headphones. I mean, obviously, any environment you're used to mixing in, you do a better job. But if I want to be able to hear how my stuff's going to translate to the real world, 
uh, I need to hear on a well-calibrated pair of speakers. There's just no substitute. There, but know, I had no choice. I was traveling and I had to get a video done, so I, I did the mixing on the road. There is no, you know, there's nothing like mixing on, on calibrated monitors. I totally agree with that. But once you learn, you know, the nuances of mixing with headphones, you can mix on headphones. You know, I wouldn't recommend it, but if you're in a bind, if you have to do it, then you got to do it. You know, just know that things are going to seem a lot louder than, they're re- than they really are. Your center is going to seem really a lot louder than you think it is. So what happens is when you mix on headphones and you think you're right in the right in the pocket where you need to be, then goose it up a couple dB because in your head, it's it's literally parked in the middle of your brain. But as soon as you pop it out and you bring it on the speakers and it splits it up and it now has to occupy a bigger space, it's you're going to lose like 3 dB. So that's just my little tip as someone who's mixed a ton on uh, on headphones. Anyhow, I just wanted to give you guys that, that uh, you know things are changing and uh, don't be afraid of Windows. But uh, I'm not the only one who's been buying gear. Brandon got a <laughs> ton of new stuff too, didn't you? Yeah, it was a it was Christmas in July a couple of weeks ago. Um, I got a new uh, a new guitar and some new effects pedals and a new little amp for my uh, work studio. I got a, a PRS Custom 24 uh, guitar, which I'm loving. It just plays beautifully. Um, you know, I looked at I looked at you know Gibsons and Gretsch and Fender and, and all those and. Ended up, you know, I, I thought I was going to go with a probably a Gibson or something, but I ended up going with this, and I'm really happy with my decision. It's a really nice guitar. And one thing I wanted uh, Brandon to mention this is because he's doing a lot of sound design with his guitar. Oh mm-hmm. yeah, that was one one uh, of the deciding factors, you know, that that went into getting this guitar was that I wanted to use it for sound design. This has the Floyd Rose pickups or the Floyd Rose uh, locking. Um, tuners or whatever so you can do a lot of just like dive bombs bombs and stuff and just just some crazy pitch bending and all sorts of stuff um which i I hope to use for just some weird little you know sound effects or whatever well some of the stuff you were pulling off of it when i was up in your studio was was pretty amazing and that's that's the cool thing about stringed instruments you know diego is a big fan of using stringed Mm -hmm. instruments for sound design is you can articulate things that you can't do any other way you can't do it in the box exactly yeah. you can't you can't get those same you know ramps or growls or screeches or things yeah. like that even using that the ebo that you did and getting that little harmonic thing going and i mean there's some that was pretty cool stuff you know yes yeah, so i got this little uh new amp too it's a uh it's a called the bugera v5 it's not you know i don't know much about bugera but it, it was sort of on the low end of uh sort of five watt tube amps and uh, it was about 200 bucks, pretty cheap. But it's great. It's got a little switch on the back. You can go from 5 watt to 1 watt to 0.1 watt. So if you want to get you know, some, distor- some tube distortion at a very low volume, you can do it you know, without waking the neighbors, which is cool. Um, and then it's got a reverb and uh, you know, gain and some uh, pitch control. It goes to 0.1 watt? Point one. Is and that like you'd be surprised how loud that? I is. was going to say, is that like insert AAA battery? <laughs> <laughs> the like, five watt is so loud, like it, uh, like it's more than you would ever need in a studio situation. You know, I, I don't know if you play on stage with this thing, but it's it's great. <laughs> and uh, you know, so I got I I got into these uh, these Pigtronics pedals. They're have great. you guys heard of these? I have a bunch of them. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, one thing that you know, I was I saw something on Synthtopia about one of them and started investigating and. They're, most of them, I think all of them, but most of them are 2448, uh, which is great. So if you're running you know, audio out, if you want to just repro- you know, process something from in the box and bring it back in, you can run them out and you're not going to... There's a digital input, input and output? 
Uh, no, but you can go, you know, analog oh, out yeah. and in. They're uh, pretty darn high quality. They're definitely good enough to be able to use to reamp with. Yeah. And they're really wonderful, interesting, innovative pedals with a lot of knobs and things that you don't see on a lot of stuff. Some great. cool things, yeah. I got the uh, the Philosopher King, which is like a compression pedal, uh, sustainer, and, and you can just, you know, hold. It's a very clean sustain, so you can just, you know, hold a note forever. It's It's pretty incredible. Um, and it does that does a couple other things, but then I got the distortion, which is a, a play <laughs> on the pig um, snort and uh, distortion. Um, but that's got like a fu- it's sort of a it's got it's like three pedals in parallel. You've got a fuzz distortion, you've got an overdrive, and then you have an octave, which is really cool. And you and you've got a gain on each of those, so you can sort of do your own little mix. So it's like having three pedals in one, and it sounds great with some really cool settings and some filters on there as well. Um, and then a really cool thing I got was uh, their their little box called the Keymaster, which is uh, it's it does a couple things. One, at simple you know you could use it as a as a splitter. You could split your audio with it, um, and it sends out XLR, XLR balanced XLR, which is cool. So if you want to, you know, the way I'm using it is I'm running you know one of those into my uh, one of those into my little amp, and the other's going direct into the computer. So, you know, all the bass that I'm missing, you know, that's coming out of this tiny little 5-watt amp, I can pick up, you know, going direct, you know, because most of my, my sound is being made with my, uh, with my pedals. I'm, you know, the amp's pretty set to a pretty clean tone. Right. Um, but you can also set this thing up so it does – it's got two switches. You can set it up so it has two separate effects loops. So if you had sort of one chain of loops running with one tone you dialed in and its second chain of loops, you could, you know – you know, bounce back and forth between the two of them or have them, uh, there's a mix knob so you can have them both at the same time. That's going to be some amazing Pretty sound cool. design on that. Yeah. So Especially going experiment. in and out on stuff like that. Yeah. And see, that's the thing, you know, coming from someone like Brandon who needs like sound effects and big, interesting sound effects, I mean, you know, you, you, sometimes you just got to go into different arsenals and you got to go different directions just to get the, the sounds and just to, to be able to arm yourself because it's all about getting that raw tone because you can process the bejeebies out of, you know, that raw tone, but you just need to get a lot of times that raw tone. That energy, yeah. Right. Just getting stuff, anything from outside the box. You know, there's so much done inside the box. The more you can bring in from outside, the the better. And it just keeps it more original. It keeps it yours. Yeah. Like, like I've heard a ton of your sounds and they're definitely – your sounds, you know, um, which is cool. You know, if you're out there wanting to be a sound designer, there's nothing like, you know, getting that initial, that initial waveform, recording that thing yourself. And you, you know what? You take a lot of pride too. in that. It's like growing your own vegetables, you know, you know, they're organically grown and, you know, <laughs> and they say they taste great in the mix. I think that a really important thing about sound design that people don't always understand is that just like in music, express expressivity is king. And when you make sounds that are really interesting and that are different than what it is that other people have done, um, a lot of time it's really that human touch. And obviously with your guitar and with pedals like this, you're going to be focusing on more sort of abstraction and abstract types of sounds to be able to start with. But it'd be great for pads. It'd be great for backgrounds and ambiences and spaceship backgrounds and things like that. And it's just wonderful Everything that comes from the human, I think, is so much more interesting for other humans to listen to, you know? I'll tell you what. Um, I just got a hold of, along the sound design, I just got a hold of Diego's Convolution Reverb, um, his Convolution oh, yeah. series. Oh, I got those. Uh, with his They're impulses. Yeah. Let me tell you, that is some good stuff. Yeah. Do you want to – I mean, 
you want to take your sound design from you know point A and take it down to like you know up twelve notches. The ideas and the things that you can do with that convolution processing is amazing. And that I mean, there's some, and he does a really great job of explaining. And you know, it's um, it's not free. Um, you think he charges a reasonable like ten dollars or something for the lessons or something like that, which is you know what this is a guy's living. He's sharing the knowledge. You know, you couldn't you know you couldn't hire someone to give you lessons, a guitar lesson for for you know that kind of money. And it's just amazing. It really is. I, I just wanted to give that a shout out while we're talking sound design. Some really cool stuff. All that to say, there's a lot of great technology. Always keep pushing yourself. Always keep looking for the next thing. That's the one thing that's really impressed me about Brandon. He's always banging or hitting or recording we're going to be going, buying gear for the rest of our lives <laughs> the rest it never of our stops lives. <laughs> uh, well you know rob's the master at that kind of stuff <laughs> rob what's the last thing you bought come on last thing i bought is i bought two native instruments machines one to stay in la and one to travel with me. that's right i remember you talking about that and you. it's a good thing i did because i would be screwed without them <laughs> been doing a lot of production I've got all my uh, my usual MacBook Pros with me, and now I'm using the iPad uh, for some stuff. It's been cool. You know that that just warms my heart when you said oh. now I'm using the iPad. It's, it's, <laughs> Rob uses the iPad. Hey, wait, wait. Rob uses the iPad, and he did a headphone mix. <laughs> oh. Yes, and only one of those only one of those two things do I seriously regret so <laughs> i'm pretty sure that rob has been removed and replaced by like by an alien that looks like rob I don't know. i'll tell you i always was the person who was always in my studio you could never find me not in the studio it got to the point where if people called and i wasn't in the studio they would panic like what happened to rob he's not answering the phone and now i've spent so much time on the road for two different projects i mean bouncing back and forth between austin and new york uh if I didn't have all this mobile stuff, I don't know what I would be doing. I mean, I just couldn't have done these two projects, basically. And that's that would not have been a good thing. You you never want to say no to a project for, for the wrong reason. So I've had to become mobile, and it's been great. I mean, it's definitely pointed out some of the shortcomings. I had some real issues in studios that I booked in both cities. You know, you can't – it's good to have your own really good studio that you trust because when you're traveling, you, you're never guaranteed what you're going to find, even places that you're told, oh, it's the best place in town – they turn out not to be that good, and it's it's been very frustrating having to learn to do things mobile, and I still don't really trust anything. But Mike will say, I mean, I did have to do a headphone mix, but I sent it to him to evaluate. Yeah, uh, I sent it to my partner back at my studio. I sent it to other people with listening environments that, that I know they're used to, um, you know, because I was in a bind there. So I, I'm doing what I'm doing on the road by necessity. I can't wait to get back to my studio in a few days and, and start doing it again uh, the good way. But, you know, having said that, the the mix that you had to fix, it's amazing that it came out of a place that didn't hear what we all heard, you know? It's just it's just amazing that that you even had to fix it in the first place, Rob, you know? You know what? The standards the standards from city to city and market to market, I mean, we get spoiled. The The, the standards in L.A. are unbelievably high. And you just, when you go other places, you just realize there's a reason local television sounds the way it does in a lot of these cities. Well, that's probably true too. I, I would say, well, and I think in LA because there's so many guys doing the job and there's just a real big competition. You just, 
you know, it has to come out pristine or it just doesn't come out, you know. So, all right. Well, hey, listen, we're going to move on. One thing I wanted to, wanted to touch base really quick as long as we're talking gear is I had the honor to visit Nick at his studio. And <laughs> let me tell you, I'm going to post a video that I took. I was I, I held on to it. God. But A, Nick has an awesome studio. <laughs> I mean, it's really cool. And B, this guy can play the organ. <laughs> I play with my organ every night. Oh. Whether I, oh, stop. 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 <laughs> it's wrong. My uh, Hammond organ. My Hammond organ. Uh, no, but it was really cool. You know, he has the, the Hammond organ. You have the, yeah. uh, the Mellotron. You have mm-hmm. the clavinet. You have all these. The Wurlitzer. I mean, these are things that like, like the Wurlitzer, I'll be honest, I haven't seen that in years. I've only seen the plug-in version that you can get yeah. on so many different. Uh, Which things. model do you have? I have a 200A and a 140B. <laughs> the 200A is in my studio, and the 140B is in my office at Disney. So that when I need to sit down, like today, I was writing some music, and rather than writing it, you know, figuring out the chord changes and things in the computer, I went and sat down at my 140 and did it that way, and wrote it on a piece of paper, and then went and put it into the computer. It's just, it's just my process. And you know, and actually playing these things and hearing them, it's just, it's just so amazing just to hear the real instruments. A, there's a lot of pretty good plugins that do a pretty good job, but it's not the same as listening to the real thing, and especially someone, you know, like Nick who knows how to play the instruments, because that's one thing is, you know. They're played a little different. You know, you don't yeah. play this as you play that. There's certain things that sound good on like this, there's certain things that don't sound good. I mean, just the way between the Wurlitzer and the Rhodes, you yeah. know? You know, those two, they play differently. And because the, the action is different between yeah. them, you know. And the Hammond, people don't understand. They think just because you, you play keyboards or piano that you can play an organ and, and feel the touch is completely different. I, I completely thought that until I got a Hammond and went, wow, this is a whole performance practice. Why don't I sound like Jimmy Smith right yeah, now? Yeah. And, you know, five years of fooling around and learning on the instrument later, you know, you start learning all of the different, uh, you know, the things that work yeah. on that and the, the registrations and how to do the things you do to hear the stuff that you hear on the records. Yeah. And with, uh, with the real Leslie yeah. that, was, that was there, I mean, just... Well, it's all in moving air. Yeah. yeah. You know. And it was just a ama- but you forget. I do. I forget. I get spoiled. You know. I have you know Native Instrument Ultimate Grand Poobah Pack. You know, and complete four hundred and seventy five. Exactly. It's you know you pull up something and you, and you use it and you, and you're like, it's not until you hear the real thing that you're like, man, these these are real instruments in here. And you know what? These real instruments sound really good. Now, having said that, you know to mic it and to get it right and to record it. You can tell it's going to take a process, so thank God I have those plugins. But it's really great to appreciate the real thing and to see it. I think that you know my approach has been you know my approach has been that I've been a '70s oriented sort of keyboard player for a really long time, and so I you know I didn't pick those all up you know over one weekend or something. It was over the course of my life. You know, a Rhodes became available, and I picked it up, and I just never got rid of it. And the same with the Whirlies and all of those kinds of different things, um, because of the fact that you know I do my my most of my paying work at a place completely different from my home studio, and I do it for a different reason. Right. I've got my studio optimized to allow me to do what I do, which is record you know these vintage instruments. And the nice thing about that is it makes it really simple and straightforward to me to be able to mic up 
you know, the Hammond. I can I can get the Hammond up and recording in ten minutes because I yeah. have discovered which mics I like and where I like setting them and which mic pre's I like. And once that's all done, I'm off. And which running. mics do you like? My, my favorites for the Hammond are the Royer 122s. And there are a lot of other mics that sound great as well, but I switched away from condenser mics to ribbon mics uh, about five years ago, and I'll never look back. I, yeah. Those are by far my favorite for guitar amps and for, yeah. you know, certainly for the Hammond. I just I just love the way that they sound, and I love the fact that they give me a lot of room. You they know, take EQ room. so well. They do. They do. What was the... Um was it an expander? What was the the yeah the Oberheim? that was that was Oberheim Matrix Oberheim. Twelve. The expander Ma- the is the is the non keyboard right. version. Matrix so. Twelve, man, yeah. that was that's nice. I hope it'll last me for a while. I talked to Tom Oberheim about it, you know, because it had gone sort of a little bit cattywampus, and he said that the ROMs inside of them are only supposed to last for about ten years, and it's I'm sure at least twenty five years old at this point. So if anything may end up eventually becoming a a, a doorstop, it might become that thing rob have you had any problems with like your 80s era synthesizers just not functioning anymore um other than batteries dying no i haven't really well good i'm hoping that this one's gonna last me a long time because i like the way it sounds i mean i i always wanted a, a matrix 12 or an expander i have uh some other oberheim stuff and with stevie i used to use a matrix 12 all the time for everything but yeah. back when i was using matrix 12 for him i couldn't afford to get one for me uh, so I didn't end up with one, but uh, I love those things. Yeah, it's a great instrument. I bought mine for a thousand bucks from a friend who just wanted to sort of clean out his studio, and it's sort of the same thing. It was like just got to be ready, Johnny, on the spot when those things come along, and, Man, and then just not sell it again. <laughs> if you get a chance to buy any of those vintage keyboards, whether it's the the Wurlitzer or, or any of the stuff, I mean, yeah. just pounce that. Even if not for anything else. I would just have it because it's just art. It's just a good-looking piece of gear, you know. It's just – I mean the, the Mellotron that you have, what a gorgeous instrument that is. It's a beautiful know? thing and I need to spend a bunch of time to get it back up and, and working again really well and well, unfortunately, it, well, you know, it's a little funky right now. Yeah, but it sounded great, man. That yeah. <laughs> The strings, come on. You yeah, just yeah. – you yeah. can't – you know. Rob, have you ever had a Mellotron? I have not, no. No, I always, uh, at times when I've seen things like that, I've lived in a space that was so cramped that I couldn't imagine bringing something physically so big in. And of course I, I regret it now, but no, I never had a, I never had any of the big mechanical keyboards. I never had uh, a B3, uh Mellotron. There are a lot of those classic things I never had. I had more of the synths, the Moogs and uh, Overheims and Arps and that kind of stuff, but smaller things. Yeah, I mean your collection definitely has that has a certain era about it and you've got the you know really good versions of that era that you have, you know that. Oh, I managed 90. I managed to find I managed to find hundreds and hundreds of pieces to buy. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. <laughs> Wasn't that hard? But, uh, uh, it, it's funny also because you know my whole early career was with Stevie and he never had a B3, he never was an organ guy, he never uh Never had a Mellotron. I mean, we would rent them from time to time to use, but my my taste kind of followed his because we were sort of brothers in gear buying there for decades. And so I was sort of into the same kind of stuff he was into, which was more the synths than the uh, right. than those other keyboards. Do you have a bunch of clavinets like he does? I have one brand new pristine one, Ooh. which he has which he has offered to steal from me. <laughs> <laughs> I actually I did some consulting. Uh, for uh, 
Honer at one point, and they instead of cash, I asked them to pay me with a clavinet, and they did. Wow, very <laughs> nice. It's actually, it's actually one that they had in the museum in Germany, and it had never been played, and they sent it over Ooh, as wow. payment for this stuff. This is a long time ago. <laughs> wow. And the next day, the person at the museum goes, "What did you do? <laughs> what happened to the clavinet? There's a hole here." <laughs> I bu- no, they were. I believe they were actually closing the museum, so it was good timing. I got you. Hey, I basically looted a museum like seven thousand miles away. So that's fine. But don't you, you have a DX one, right? Don't you have a DX? I do have a DX one, and actually, Yamaha is going to borrow it from me to put on display at an upcoming event. They're celebrating, you know, the fortieth anniversary of Yamaha synthesizers, and uh, they're borrowing some of my old Yamaha gear because I actually have a few vintage Yamaha pieces like that. And the DX one is one of the first synths I ever had, and it was sort of the key to me getting my job with Stevie because the band that ended up involving me had only ever seen one at Stevie's studio. And they thought, well, this kid in Philly must be serious if he has a DX one. And I was 21 years old. So the fact that they took me seriously was pretty cool. And that DX one basically got me my intro to Stevie originally. And so I'm actually going to do a video for Yamaha telling that story uh, too. Well, well, wait a second. Wait. So you have gear that the manufacturer doesn't have anymore. I mean, that, well, that's there's something kind was, of backwards on that. I mean, they asked to borrow it, so I assume they might not have one laying around in Buena Park. I don't know. I, I would say they probably go through so much inventory that they no one ever thinks to to, to keep hold, one of everything. To keep one of everything, especially like the DX one. That was such an odd. You, you know, that's that double, um, yeah. the double keyboard yeah. DX7, basically. I mean, it's... No, no, the, D, the DX1 didn't have a double keyboard. It had a whole giant programming interface up top with LEDs that's and it, stuff. That's, was, that's the one. Yeah, you're right. Which is the one that had the, the double keyboard? Is that keyboard? the GS one? No, there was a well, DX... Well, the GX1, the dream machine that they only made four of on Earth, and Stevie has two of them. <laughs> <laughs> David, uh, David uh, uh, from Toto. He ha- David he Page? One. Yeah, I think he has the other one. He had one, yeah. and I think that I think that uh, Keith Emerson had one. I'm yeah. not sure about that. Anyway, the DX one, you're right. It was It's the big one, the program one. That was awesome. That just looks impressive, and you keep it in really good, pristine condition. So that's probably what it's, if, even if they yeah, had it's been it. Yeah, it, it's been a while since it got any use, but it still looks like the day I bought it, <laughs> which well, was in 1983, I guess, something like that. How much did it cost? Um, it was, I think it was like 12 grand list. It was expensive. Yeah. yeah. Wow. In 1983 dollars, no less. Yeah. And exactly. Yeah. How did a 21 year old kid from? There was a guy named Benny Sintioli who had Sintioli's music store in Philly. Actually, it's still there. And he thought I had a promising future and he let me take it home and pay him when I could find the money. And so it actually took me a few years to pay him back. Um, uh, and I, I moved it to L.A., and I lived in L.A. for probably two or three years with it before I was able to finally pay him for the whole thing. But he believed in me, and he let me let me take it home. Wow. Nice. That's See, awesome. The, now, that's the beauty of a mom-and-pop yeah. music store. I'm yeah. pretty sure Guitar Center would do the same thing. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Or if you're looking for guys every day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that's true. I mean, that's – that's man, That you just don't get that kind of service anymore, yeah. you know? Well, and this was uh, a little mom and pop place, and it was basically an accordion shop. I mean, I don't even know what he was doing with some of this gear, but I've got my first four-track tape machine from him. I bought a ton of gear from him because he was willing to let me basically steal it and pay him when I could find the money, and I always did, but it took a while sometimes. Wow. 
And I'm, I'm trying to remember, it was 12 grand list or nine grand list, whatever it was, it was prohibitive. I mean, I had like a hundred dollars to spend. So. Yeah, no, they were really, really expensive. I they mean, were really expensive and way more than a DX7, which it was basically the big brother of the DX7 with Yamaha, the lower the model number, uh, Oh, well, usually that worked. Like the, the lower the model number, the fancier the gear. So right. DX1 was the fancy one. DX7 was the one everybody knew about. DX9 was a reduced version of the DX7. And the DX100 was like the little one with the teeny keys. Isn't that right? Yeah. Yeah, and the DX1000 was probably drawn on a napkin. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I knew which one. the uh, Was it the DX10 that had that double? Which one had the double... The double keyboard. Um, well, the GX one, the GX one was the first FM synth they made, right? Or it but, had partial FM. That had a double keyboard and two giant speakers, and uh, there's that's the rarest synth I know of from them. And that, by the way, in 1976, that was fifty thousand dollars. Holy smokes! Well, I, I do know back then, wait, uh, DX7 was like 2200 bucks, which was really, really expensive, especially in those dollars. Anyhow, all that to say, guys, you know, it was great talking gear, this, you know, this first part, and it was good going back to the old gear, but it's good going back to new stuff too, and Brandon and all your stuff. Um, we're going to take a break right now. When we come back, we're going to continue our series on mixing, and we're going to talk about the subtle. That's going to be the focus. It's sometimes you don't have to pound people over their head. Sometimes it's all about the subtle. So uh, stand by and uh, we'll catch you after the break. You're listening to the Audio Nowcast sponsored by API and Westwave Audio. Have a question for the panel? Would you like to be a guest on the Audio Nowcast and live in the L.A. area? Email us at audio at nowcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back to Audio Nowcast. And before the break, we were just uh, talking gear and we were talking about uh, computers and we were talking all kinds of fun stuff. Um, that out of the way, I want to continue talking about mixing. And I have a story that kind of inspired what we're going to talk about right now. I was doing some mixing of um, some of Martin's stuff that I'm, I'm doing some mixes for him. And I got his, his temp mixes and I heard what he did. And he's a really great mixer, by the way. That's, he doesn't get enough credit for that. He's a really good musician and songwriter, but he's actually a really good mixer too. So I was listening to his mixes and all of a sudden when I heard the raw tracks, there was all this subtle stuff that was popping up. There were background vocals that were not really audible but you could feel it and it totally made all the difference in the world. There was these little moves and it, I started thinking about all this subtleness that was in this track and it just got me thinking about – you know, subtleness in just music and in mixing and post and even sound design. And so I wanted to sit here and I wanted to, to talk a little bit and focus on sometimes it's not always, you know, over compress, over hit, more gain, more this. Sometimes what makes a lot of difference is some subtle things. And so I wanted to talk to you guys and pick your brain on what 
type of subtle things do you find that you use or that you've heard that really kind of help shape the flavor? Because you've got gear now, for instance, the API 5500 EQ, which can raise or lower um, frequencies in increments of a quarter and a half a dB, you know? And people think, why would you ever need that? But you know what? Sometimes a little bit at a certain frequency is all you need to make your track pop out from somebody else's track. And I'm going to start with you, Bobby, because I know you've been mixing a lot lately. You've told me. Um, let's talk about subtlety and let's talk about some of the stuff you've been working on and what you've been mixing. Well, first of all, uh, when you talk about quarter and half dB increments, that's what mastering guys do. They're, they're always in, in increments that small. Right. So, and it's really amazing to go look at a great mastering guy and you hear this huge difference, but you look and it looks like they're not doing anything where there's a quarter here and a half here and, and maybe one and, and you go, whoa, that much. You know, so it's amazing and, and we don't, we take that for granted so often. But anyway, subtleties. Okay, some of the subtle things I like to do effects wise are uh, stereo uh, Haas delays, in other words, less than 40 milliseconds, especially on vocals, where it widens it out, it gives it a, a feel, but you don't hear it, because anything less than 40 milliseconds you don't hear is a distinct repeat. Well, depends which book you read. Some say it's 30 milliseconds, but anyway, you know, something that's low. And I time it to the track. The other thing... Um, so wait, it's a stereo... Just just explain that one more time. It's, it's a stereo delay... Uh, that's time to the track that may be uh, something, let's say, like 10 milliseconds on one side and 15 on the other. Okay, so it spreads it out a little Spreads bit. it out, and because it's different, it also gives it a feeling of space. And that's the other thing with delays a lot of times, where if you do uh, something, time to the track, where it's maybe a triplet on one side and a, and a dotted eighth note or something on the other side, Again, it gives it a space, and you don't really hear the repeat so much. It blends into the track. It's very subtle. Right. And, oh. and, and again, what will happen is you'll – a lot of times what you want is you want the vocal or a guitar or whatever it is. You, you want it to stand out in the track or you want it to actually blend in the track. It doesn't matter, but you want it to not be as bland as it is as you know, when it's dry. And this is a way of of giving it some life without anyone really knowing, without the listener knowing. Well, and without throwing reverb at it, you know? Yeah. Sometimes people go to reverb, right? I mean, you can – look, what separates the men from the boys sometimes is, you know, hall, plate. Because <laughs> I mean, I've heard, you know, people come to me with mixes and stuff and it's like, why doesn't this just sound like what well, you hear on, you know? And it's like – Man, you're throwing a little too much reverb in there. Well, you know? here's something else, though, on, on reverb. Um, people, when they think of reverb, they think of long two- and three- and four-second reverbs. Right. But I learned when I first came to L.A. really fast that sometimes the best reverbs are the shortest. And you put that sucker as short as it will go, and all of a sudden you give an instrument list it works great on guitars especially it gives it a life it feels like a room but you don't quite hear it as a reverb and 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 also you you also separate the good reverbs from the bad reverbs that way it's not so much the the, the decay the long decays it's the short ones because that's when they start to sound metallic yeah no you're right yeah that's where you can get that <laughs> the difference between an sbx 
90 where it's just – you could see the waveforms of the tail to like a really nice lexicon or something like that. I'll give you another subtlety that I like a lot and that's uh, Harmonizer. There's um, – I, I can't remember. I guess it's Softube that has it. They have a, a new Harmonizer plug-in. It's cheap. It's about 125 bucks. It's called uh, Little Pitch or something like that. I, I don't remember exactly but what it is is it, it's the best of – the 949 uh, Eventide Harmonizer of the – I think it's the, the H3000 and also the um, AMS. So there's these presets that are great. But again, just a touch of it right. will, also, will make something bigger and fatter and won't sound like it's harmonized. And sometimes on a vocal especially, it can smooth out the – if someone's a little pitchy, right? You know, I can smooth it out. It works great. Nick, what about you? Any any subtle tips, tricks, things that you like to use? Uh, sound designer music. Take your pick. Well, I'll I'll start by jumping in on music really quickly because I just finished uh, doing a couple of mixes um, for uh, my mom's memorial. She was a big Beatles fan, and so I went and recorded "Let It Be" and "The Long and Winding Road" in her honor. And so I was going back and just having a really great time recording and thinking about it and thinking about her and all of that during it. And as I was experimenting with uh, working on vocal stuff, I did exactly what you were talking about, Bobby. I have an Echoplex, and I really focused on tweaking it so that the Echoplex delay itself was very, very short. And, uh, you know, there weren't a lot of feedbacks. It was, you know, one or two slaps, and it was really, really tight. But it's what's incredible with delay on a vocal is you put it in, and as soon as you take it out, if you mute it, you mute it, you all of a sudden realize just how much it's doing to create this wonderful pillowy right. or bigger sound. And it really does sound like reverb without it sounding like reverb. So, you know, you take that and, you know, put a little bit of tastefully chosen reverb on there, you know, with a decay length that uh, really sort of matches the vibe of the song and what you're going for. And, uh, you know, you can really get somewhere. It's interesting. I remember in my early days, everything was, you know, 1980s SPX 90, pick a hall and like turn it up as big. And I always wonder why it didn't sound like the Yes albums that I was, you know, trying to emulate back Come in the on. 80s. That, right? that was some ugly reverb. Man. It was horrible. It <laughs> was horrible. It had its own character. Sure. It was, it was awful. But, you, you know, the older you get, as you say, the more subtle you get and the shorter your decay times come and it becomes a big deal whether you're picking a plate algorithm or a hall algorithm you know i i think for me along those lines i'm no longer interested in having a million reverbs and a million different choices and one of these days i'm going to sell a bunch of my hardware reverbs and take that and some extra money and just buy a single Bercasti M7 and be done with it. They're phenomenal <laughs> yeah. sounding instruments. Yeah, they are. They're incredible. Yeah. So out I mean, of all the hardware reverbs right now that's probably the best sound every time i hear it it's just so beautiful it's incredible rob do you have a bercasti i don't actually and it's funny because i'm i'm very much married to the tcm 6000 and it's Mm -hmm. been my go-to hardware for a really long time and last time i was back in la it decided to not boot up anymore and it's basically because the battery hadn't been replaced in about i don't know 15 years or something but uh i ended up having to get it serviced but i was without it for a mix for a while and I was panicking and I thought about buying a Bricasti. I thought about starting to experiment with new things, but I was in the middle of some mixes that had already been approved the way they were through the TC and the idea of changing a reverb. It's not like you can slot in a new reverb and not have to redo a mix. So I ended up borrowing from Mr. Gershon in M6000. Thank you again, Scott. Uh, 
because there was nothing that would suffice. So if you get if you use a reverb and it becomes your go-to tool, it's such an important identifiable texture in your mix. It's not like you were using a large hall in one reverb and that died, so use a large hall in another. It just doesn't work that way. And you get used but, to it too. You get used to the way it sounds and, and you mix around it. Absolutely. So, yeah. so it's really difficult to change in the middle and go, oh, wait, why does this sound funny to me? Well, it's because you got used to the way it used to sound. And you know what? Having this, having said that, the Procasti Reverb, you know, the price for those, even at like a Sweetwater, it's not horrible. I mean, it's like 36. Oh, not the way they used to be. Right. Uh, yeah, Remember? Yeah, they used yeah. to be the price of a house, right? Yeah. I mean, they were, yeah. you get to some of those, uh, the lexicons and stuff, they were expensive. But yeah. now, you know, you can get. A phenomenal reverb. You can get in on their line at like thirty six hundred bucks, yeah. which people are going thirty six hundred dollars for a reverb. But just sit it. down and listen to worth it. it. Yeah. Go to a Nam show or an AES and sit down and listen to it, and you will see why. Yeah, it's phenomenal. And uh, and boy, I tell you, man, sometimes you're only as good as your tools on some things. And there's there's some you want some luscious reverb, you can get it right there. Um, Brandon, how about you? What what little subtle and, and see which is interesting is you you make your living with big bombastic stuff. <laughs> but I know there's a lot of other things that you do because I've seen how you do some of your sound design. Yeah, do we want to talk sound design? I mean, you guys talk yeah, music, abs- so no, no, I'll do, talk, sound, do sound design. Talk music as well. Um, but yeah, sound. I mean, it's the the subtleties that make it real. You know, it's your attention's drawn to the. You know, if you've got some big action, you know, scene or whatever, your attention's drawn to the sword going in the guy's face or you know the thing exploding or whatever. But it's all those little subtleties that if you remove them, it would feel like a stale, you know, sterile, you know, unreal environment. It's like the backgrounds and just little sound design layers, like. Um, when I was working, we worked on Transformers uh, this past uh, – it's coming out. or Did it just come out? Yeah, it just came out, right? June 27th it came out. That's right. All right. <laughs> I saw it a year ago, so I forget when these things come out. <laughs> Anyways, but – so I did a lot of Transformer sounds for those trailers. And uh, in the transformations, you know, you're hearing the – you know, all those things like the synths and the hits and the metallic things. But it's the little subtleties. And I learned this from watching a, a documentary on what the the actual, you know, sound editors on those movies were doing. But one thing they used was um, was breaking ice. It was this little like – of the breaking ice and just these little high end layers that you put into the sound that just, it, it makes it really, you know, realistic and cool. And it's just those little, little tiny bits. I'll tell you one thing in sound design. Um, and I, this is actually some of your sounds that I've stole. I mean, borrowed. Um, <laughs> At least you tell me when you steal them. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> um, but you know, sometimes to get, to get your impact to, to really impact, I find that you will do a little, a little lead up, a little subtle, little you know, whoosh up or a suck mm-hmm. up or something like that. Mm-hmm. That just makes that hit just gobble. Snap, yeah. So even in the mix, like let's say I'm, I'm mixing something and for post or something, and I need that hit, you're not going to hear the suck up, but you'll feel that, and it might be in a lower register or subharmonic, you know, somewhere down there. But man, it's this nice like builds just tension, and then when it snaps, it snaps with some power. Yeah, with hits, I mean, with you know big trailer hits or whatever, like you're talking about, you know, it is about the you know the ramp into it and then the decay, 
and that's where the interesting things are happening. You know, every hit's got some big low endy, you know, thing to hit you in the chest. But then I'll put some, you know, little high endy layers on top of that, whether it's a, a little metallic, you know, hit of some sort that you're not really hearing, but it makes that, you know, and you hear this in music too, with like a big, you know, sub kick or something. You know, you hear a little click or a pop on top of it. Oh, absolutely. Because without that little click, you know. You don't necessarily hear there's the bass. No definition, it's just, yeah. yeah, there's no definition. Yeah. It just it makes that bass seem bigger and bassier. And there's yeah. there's movement in the midsection though. I mean I've I've heard some hits where you have that you have the low end rumble, right? You have that high end little attack thing. And then the mid does some really cool thing. It'll either, you know, I've heard, you know, it'll dive. It won't do a big, huge dive, but when it hits, it boot, you know, a little ramp down, you know, frequency wise. That kind of just when you put it all together, you just it, it. You know what? It makes the hit louder without it being louder because you get this illusion of it going big into soft, and it's really just the frequency kind of. Yeah, this is one little trick about pitch shifting: is you know, it just even a subtle little, you know, just yeah. a couple, you know, steps down, you know, you know, it's just it's the movement that draws people's right. attention to it. It's not louder, but it if it was just boom, you know, you wouldn't. It would be there, but this that movement draws your attention in. Yeah, because you can't always, you know, that's the subtleties, especially on something like this. A perfect example: you can't always be pushing the volume, pushing the volume, pushing right. volume, because you're going to run out of places well, to it's push con- it. It's contrast. Brandon, have you designed gunshots before? Uh, yeah, I have. Do you want you want to talk about that a little? Bit? It's, um, you know, one thing with gunshots is, you know, you got to. Some of them don't, you know, sound very big on their own. You know, it's just a little pop, you know, whatever. Um, so you got to put some, like the, uh, I'll use Waves uh, Trans X on them sometimes to get some extra low end or some mid, you know, frequencies in there. And a lot of times with field recording, you know, just in general, you know, I'll go be, you know, banging pipes on a, a pile of scrap metal or whatever. And when you get them back in the studio, they so- they sounded huge in person, but it sounds small, you know, because there's not a ton of low end, you know, content. Um, so I'll I'll take things like that and I'll I'll take one, I'll double it, I'll pitch shift it down an octave, layer it underneath. Sometimes do another octave, layer it underneath. And if you record at 192, it's it still has some impact to it. And then sort of mix those together, and you end up getting a you know something that like either metallic sounds, you know, as well as gunshot sounds. It's a uh, you know, they you need to either add another layer of bass underneath of them, or you need to run it out to like an R bass or something to give it a little extra oomph on the low end. It's been uh, it's been my experience that you know all, all of agreed with everything that you say there. I love putting in like an LFE sweetener rather than actually just pitch shifting it down. I have like separate LFEs in my library that I just bring in low frequency you know stuff that I bring in on top of it. But the thing for me that really ends up selling it is not just the explosion of the gunshot itself because it could be a gunshot or a cannon or something else. Um, it's the mechanics, right? So you hear the of the gun and you hear the sound of the the brass of the shells that are tinkling on the ground and you hear you know the reverb tail of the gun after it's bounced off the canyon wall and it right. comes back and those are the pieces together in my opinion that really sort of sells the whole gunshot as a real right. package otherwise right. it's, it's a snare drum basically yeah. right, you know? <laughs> right. well you know it's interesting with sound design and rob i'm going to get to you right now but with sound design in particular and this actually works for music too but you know it's it's your transients. You you live and die a lot of these things on those transients, right? If there's one thing you want to protect and you know is your transients, because that's gonna give you a definition. And what and what I mean by that is just the attack, that initial t- t- 
you know, there's this, and I mentioned this before on the podcast, you know, there was this test that you could take where you could identify all these different sounds and simply by hearing milliseconds of the attack, you knew, oh, that's wood. Oh, that's this. Oh, that's that. That's that. And it's all, it's all that, that transients. So you want to destroy your mix in a subtle way? Get rid of all those transients, you know? But that doesn't mean everything has to sound like a hi-hat coming at you. I mean, sometimes you want to, you know, control those. Sometimes you want to put a little compression in there just to squish it just a little bit, you know, just to kind of to mellow something out. Um, but, um, but yeah. I always compress my hi-hats with an LA-2. Really? It's a trick I learned from Dave Pensato. LA-2. LA-2. And what, what, does, what characteristics does that give you? Is it just... Does it flatten it out or does it, it, it – It evens it out and it makes it a little bigger sounding as, as you'd expect yeah. because what happens is that the, the – it, it lets the transient go through because it's a slow compressor. But it also you know, gets the release and lifts the release up a little bit. So it's like you know what? And that's, that's a great – releases. There's another thing, man. You want to start playing with your compressor. Start playing with your release. With attack and the release, yeah. And you know, a lot of people just leave those controls as they are, or put them right in the middle. Right, and, and it makes a big, big difference uh, on everything. On music, and I'm sure on on sound design, huge difference. I'll, I'll tell you where release works really well too. Is like if you're mixing post production and you're doing a commercial spot or something like that. If I'm mixing, you know, I just finished that National Congress. Um, that Indian uh, American Indian um, spot for for the National Congress of Native Americans. I think that's the name. <laughs> anyhow, I'm trying to remember. Anyhow, it was just basically um, VO and music. Um, but I like to side chain my VO against the music just a little bit, and then play with the release just a little bit, so that what happens is every time he talks. The music dips a little, right, on his initial attack, and then the release just kind of lets it go back up. It doesn't pump, but it really sounds like there was a bigger fader move than there really was without it sounding pumpy. So it doesn't like, you know, you're not on a roller coaster, yeah. but it just it, it kind of cuts the music down and you're keeping going. And that's, that's all just using your release a little bit. Hit it and then just let the release kind of come off of it a little bit. Rob, subtle. Yeah, I like to think I put the B in something. <laughs> Actually, I don't. I tend to be over the top, but it's a good line. I figured I'd use it. Uh, I'll just say, I, I mean, I agree with what you guys were saying about it. I'll say that the number one thing when I think of subtle is how amazed I am at how many inexperienced producers and engineers work so hard to get rid of the subtleties. I mean, I'll get handed lead vocals where they've taken out all the breaths. Mm. Or uh, things like that. All the things that can make a performance seem human. A guitar performance where they've taken out all the fret squeaks. You know, and obviously you don't want something to be overwhelming and distracting like a fret squeak. But it's nice to have some subtleties that bring a, a liveness and a context to the sounds you're hearing. And I think people work very, very hard to get rid of things that they should really just be trying to control a little bit. I mean, if you have a singer who has a very husky inhale, the trick is not to get rid of it. It's to maybe thin it out, make it softer or whatever, you know, just the inhales. But if you get rid of it, then it sounds like the HAL 9000. You know, it sounds like a robot. Yeah. And I'm amazed. I, I get so many tracks where all of that humanity has been removed from them. And I think that's the number one mistake uh, people make. Well, I mean, could you say that like 
with when people over auto tune something, you know, when they take a little bit of that character because they want everything to land on the pitch, you know, um, sometimes you're not on the pitch. Sometimes you slide in, slide off, maybe go a little sharp, you know, um, and you start auto tuning it. You just take a lot of that humanity away. Sometimes, I mean, unless you're going for that specific effect, which yeah. is completely played out by now, but uh, yeah. Rob, Rob, that would be me who would take all the breaths out. Really? You take them all out? I, I take them all out most of the time. If there's a particular song where they they seem to work and they help with the emotion, I leave them in. But for a lot of the things that I do, uh, it just sounds cleaner if I take them out. And frankly, this goes all the way back to my early analog days when I remember that we would sit with the spot erase on the 24 track and, and take all those stuff out, all those things out before we let the mix out. Wait, you, how, how would you spot erase? How, how does that work? Well, uh, multi-track recorders used to have something called spot erase, which basically would, as soon as, long as you put your foot on the button, it would be an erase, put your, 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 your finger on the button and you would rock the reels and it would just erase that little part there. Really? So we'd go in and find the breaths and we would just, you know, gradually erase the breaths. And, and obviously... You are a brave man, Bobby Osinski. <laughs> well, it wasn't just me. It was everybody. And, you know, it was one of those things. I learned from, from great engineers that would do that wow. and, and, and would beat me up, actually, at the time saying, well, hey, how can you leave that out with that stuff? You know, so that's how I learned to do it. <laughs> that's so dangerous. Well, it's so dangerous because if you could cut off the the beginning of a word very right. easily, yeah. or, or the end of one, and and, and you couldn't draw a fade. <laughs> no, no. And what happens if you hear just like the you know the beginning of the breath in there as you're doing? It? I mean, what happens if the person ends up you know sings a word and then it sort of quickly? Yeah, goes ho- hopefully you cap you, you know you fix all that, but. Wow. Um, there's songs, if you listen on the radio, that are like that where people made mistakes. <laughs> That's awesome. See, I love these sell-up stories like this because it's like, man. And, and again, what it was and where it started for me was I was a Cherokee and I was doing something and I I think it what it was, I, I went into the room next door and Ringo was in there. Wow. And we used to go back and forth. Ringo would come into my room, and he wasn't there that particular day. But the engineer who was there um, was doing this, and I looked at him and I was completely amazed. He says, "What? You don't do this?" I said, "No." He says, well, "You're not an engineer unless you know how to do this." <laughs> and, and you know, the peer pressure kind of got me. Yeah, that's so. That just that's just so amazing that you just. Pop into masters just like that. That's crazy. Well, you know, the first couple of times you, you really sweat it out, but after that, you, you know, you get pretty right. good at it. And, and now it's a piece of cake. So the first thing I'll do, I'll listen down to a vocal and I'll listen what it's like in the track. And if the breaths seem like they're adding something, they stay in. Right. And if they don't, they go right away. Yeah. Sorry, Rob. That's okay. We can agree to disagree. Yeah. I mean, I find a lot of times I have to control them, you know, and make them sound more like what you would have heard in the room. Cause a lot of times, depending how the singer's working the mic, the breath is way more accentuated than it would be in a normal listening environment. And the but compressor I, I too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, I do everything I can to try to make it where if you were to listen to just a vocal only mix, it would sound like a performance. Um, and part of it is that I've been lucky enough to work with great singers who are delivering those kinds of performances. And 
I like listening to just their vocal and nothing else. And I like it to sound like a performance. That being said, like on, on voiceover for, for post projects, I usually do get rid of all the breaths cause they're distracting, but right. in a song vocal performance, I like it to sound like you happen to be lucky enough to be in the room while a singer delivered a great performance, even if it came from 1200 different takes and a million edits. Uh, what do you do to control the breaths? Um, it's funny on this thing I was mixing in the last few days, I had to control a lot of breaths. I found myself manually, uh, clip gaining them down in pro tools, which makes it easy instead of trying to have some automated process, because I've never found an automated process that's going to treat the breaths right and not affect the rest of the, the vocal. So I'll often manually move them down and I often have to thin them out a lot. So I'll just do a, like a, a low pass on them. I'm sorry, a high pass filter on them and uh just thin them out that's a lot um, but of that, work. it's it's different for every project but in most of the things i've done recently there are like in the course of a four minute piece there are maybe five or six bad ones so it doesn't end up being that much work you just have to do a pass where you go top to bottom and check it all huh. but um i well, don't know it's a subtle thing I don't, I don't know that you sell any more or fewer records because of it it's just but again it's different production techniques and what works for you yeah. Uh, you know, one isn't necessarily better than the other. It's just it, it just no, is. They're just different. Yeah, and actually, it's probably it's really good that people be aware that of these two schools of thought because you never know which one's going to apply. Yeah. Okay, so we've talked a lot of you know little tips and tricks and things like that. I got a couple other things that I wrote some notes down that I get your guys' opinion on. Um, one subtle thing that can really help your mixes is let's just start right at the beginning. Um, fader moves. Sometimes you don't have to move that fader. You know, if you record something properly, use a good mic pre, all your instruments are recorded really well, and you've got a good sound, sometimes that sound can kind of lock into itself really quick, and you don't have to make a lot of gnarly moves. You can get a really, you know, it starts. Everybody will tell you it starts with the recording. So sometimes when you get the recording, it really helps your job later on because you don't find that you have to do a lot of crazy things. You don't have to do a lot of crazy fader moves. And there's nothing worse than when you're listening to a song and you can practically see the fader moves. <laughs> you know? I mean, and you, you hear it. Like someone's coming in on a guitar solo and you hear that that ramp up and stuff like that. And it's not a musical ramp. It's like, oh, you know what I mean? Or the guy's doing automation or everything is automated and it's squirrely little faders going all over the place and things like that. I had one like that yesterday where there was zero automation in the whole thing. It just laid there and it was perfect and it's so rare. But I got to say... A lot of it was electronic as well. That, like for instance, it was electronic drums and and, and lot, lots of synths, and that helped it because ordinarily, if it was uh, you know bass and drums, real bass and drums, I'd be writing a little bit on fills, and I'd be writing it in the, in the beginning of a section and stuff like that. But you know, in this case, it just laid there, and, right. and, and I was shocked, but pleasantly shocked because it was like, oh boy, I don't have to do a, a you know a pass an automation pass. It's amazing when you see like Pro Tool sessions from some of these mixers. And if you go on the internet, you'll see it. And they'll show screenshots of the session for you know a couple different songs. And you look at the automation on the volume. A lot of these big guys, there's not a whole heck of a lot going on there. It's like they've, you know, they, they, they win their battles in their EQ. They win their battles when they're recording. And the actual fader automation, they're not jumping all over the place. It's really, really um, subtle little moves. Rob? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've told this story before, but I've been lucky enough, you know, with my years with Stevie to have gone through a lot of his old master tapes. And my partner, Gary O, in, in my production company, you know, engineered a mix a ton of that classic stuff. And their philosophy was basically, if you put up the master, they were so careful with the recording. If you put up the master and put all the faders across at zero, you basically get the record yeah. most of the time. And so you go pull up any of those original master tapes from Stevie from back in those days. And chances are, if you put all the faders up in a straight line, you've got a pretty close to final mix. Isn't that cool? It is so, so old school, but it's amazing. It's great. It's the same thing in, in post. You know, if you're generating a pre-dub, you know, it's been my experience that your goal is to be able to hand the pre-dub to the mixer so that he can put everything at unity and he's most of the way there because yeah. he's moving along and that, you know, stage is $2,500 an hour. Yeah. And the goal is to have it basically there and give him the options to drop stuff out or tweak things a little bit. But you don't want him having to go in and second guess what you've already done, you know, within your units, within the elements that you're dropping. Would you, would you agree yeah, with that? Totally. Oh, well, go ahead. Yeah, like when we a couple of times when a piece of music of mine have gone to finish in a trailer. Yeah, we they want the stems, and you know I make sure I master those stems, and you know I even pull the, the each mastered stem into a, a, a project just to you know quality control it and make sure exactly. So when it gets to the guy, he can just put it all in there, and it sounds perfect. And I'll tell you what, in a perfect world, it would show up that way. But as a post mixer, the only problem with that scenario is you get this editor that gets in the way. (laughs) 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 And they do some truly horrible, horrible, horrible things. Like, I'll tell you one, I'll tell you right off the bat, here's what editors like to do, right? If they want something louder, double it. They double, (laughs) triple, quadruple it. Yeah. Right? And I always say, look, there's your volume. (laughs) <laughs> Turn it louder in the You're room. You're talking about picture editors. Right. You're not talking about sound because editors. That's what I, exactly. So yeah. that's the, yeah, I'm not talking sound editors. So they will double, triple, quadruple things. And so I get an OMF, and the first thing I notice is I'm like, what did I get? The multi track version of this thing? You know, you just see like four stacked dialogue things. I'm like, oh man. Oh, oh. So you got to thin all that out. Yeah. And you got to thin. I mean, yeah, it, it comes over crazy and, and, uh, you know, you feel sorry for them, the editors. A couple of them are good, really good with audio, but a lot of them are not. Yeah. And so you'll, you know, you'll get like I'll get these. You know, when I'm working on to sound design a scene or whatever, they will give it to me. Everything's totally overmodulated, you know, and just yeah. all in the red. And when you look at their your their um, final cut session, it's they just brought everything in and didn't do any mixing. It's just all there at its I, highest you level. Know, I wonder if they think it doesn't sound good unless they see red. Well, it's a volume war. I mean, why, why they do it sometimes is when it's being played back, you know, for the client, you know, you're up against several other, you know, people from within our house and other trailer houses when they're playing back these things. And it's a volume war. You want to sound the biggest and the loudest. And if yours is mixed perfectly, you know, with a lot of dynamics, nice and low, you know, compared to these other guys who are all in the red, uh, it's going to sound small. But you know what? The thing that always amazed me is they would be better off doing a good sounding mix, right? And then boosting the, the and then masters, right? bouncing it out and then boosting it up. I, or, I've told them this several times. Or <laughs> do your post-processing on that stem, on that stereo mix. Yeah. So that you're not, you know, so you can set it at like, you, you know, you set your output at like, uh, you know, point 0.1. You know I mean? Just... Right before zero, you know, minus point 
dot zero zero zero, you know, just right before that. But no, anyhow. But um, yeah, there's nothing. Well, in subtle. a perfect world, yeah. <laughs> when you're talking about you know a good foley supervisor yeah, or a yeah, good yeah, dialogue yeah. supervisor or no, somebody right. like that, they're going to be bringing in units for the film mixer to be able to work with, in which stuff is, you know. Stuff is sounding pretty darn good when they put it up at Unity, and that's well, the goal of you know really good quality people who have worked together for a long time. I saw this at Skywalker Sound all the time. Yeah, well, and I'm sure Scott, you know, he's actually on a mix, you know, today. That's why he couldn't be with us. He would tell you, you know, those sound designers, um, by the time it gets to the mixer, it it lays in the scene, and um, and I know this because I've mixed some stuff that you know that when he was over at Soundalex that they did for me on some video game trailers and. Oof, it laid in, you know, which is another topic for another day. As a sound designer, you know, not only do you have to design, but you got to make your stuff kind of fit in the mix. And you, so you kind of have to mix too, you know, that's all, that's all mixing. But, but, um, but yeah, fader moves. You do not have to overdo your fader moves. Sometimes it just works. Sometimes it's just there. Um, the other thing I wanted to, to tell you guys about is for on the subtleties and tell me what you think about this. Um, Sometimes just running it through a piece of gear, just the sound of the gear itself without even having to process it. For instance, um, obviously, you know, we're sponsored by API, but like if you run some of your stuff through some of their API stuff, even if you go like, you know, sometimes through like a 525 without it really even doing anything, even engaged, you can get a little bit of that little analog goodness, a little bit of the rounding, a little bit of that little punch. And it's those little subtle things, you know. Um, you guys have any experience with just doing something like that? Well, we were talking about this at dinner the other night. Remember we had a long conversation about API and how quality, you know, what great quality their stuff is and right. how nice it sounds. I have just finished uh, dialing in my non-Pro Tools mix system at home. So it's a radar going into um, a pair of Neve 8816s with a pair of uh, Neve 1081 EQs that I built and then going into a 33609 compressor. So a very simple but very, you know, I mean really very well standardized and well understood kind of kind of signal flow. Right. My experience was that the virtue of having these tracks going through that system, you know, they were well recorded, which was a big thing, and the arrangement was streamlined and simple, and that was a big thing. But once I took all of that stuff and I put it all up, I felt like it just mixed itself. I mean, it was so much easier yeah. for me to be able to have it so that the vocal sounded huge in the center, and there was, but you could hear absolutely everything. And I think it was because it was a really pristine, very high-quality signal chain all the way through. What about, what about you, Brandon? Well, there's this piece of gear. I don't have it, but I want it. There's this company, uh, Thermionic Culture. Have you heard mm. of these yeah. guys? Oh, yeah. yeah. Rich company. Um, I want all their gear. One day I, <laughs> I will buy it. Um, but, yeah, like just they, just today I saw that they, they have a, a piece of gear called the Culture Vulture, which yeah. a lot of people have used you know, on various elements in the mix, but some will just use a very subtle setting you know, on their entire mix. It's a distortion and sort of a saturation unit, but it's uh, on very subtle settings. Yeah. Uh, Universal Audio just uh, released a software version of yeah. it, right. like today or yesterday. Yeah, I saw that. Um, which I want to get. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's just that analog circuit. It can be subtle enough that it gives you a little bit of magic, as they say. I mean, I know we're all talking – there's no numbers here. You know, the thing about analog is you, you get to talk almost like you're talking about fairies, you know. <laughs> this, but really, there's this little magic dust. There's this little magic something, you know, on, on high-quality gear. Um, Rob? There's there's actually uh, a plugin. There are some plugins that actually 
can affect the sound in a pleasing way, even if you don't have any of the theoretical circuits engaged. And one of them that comes to mind that we use all the time is the Waves, uh, do they call it the V-Comp, the Neve compressor that they have? If you just run through its input and output stage, but don't use it to do any compression or anything, they modeled the analog I.O. of this hardware so well that I can't actually say exactly what it's doing, but we've used it in mastering. Um, it does something, it, it, it sort of focuses the low end a bit, and it's just a really pleasing sound. And, I mean, it, it's a good compressor, too, if you actually use it for that. But right. if you just switch off all of that and just use the input and output of it, it's a plug-in that actually brings an analog uh, feel to what you're doing, and it's really cool. That's cool. Yeah, so you get it on plugins, and I'll, actually, you know, you look at, um, the tape emulations and things like that. And Slate Digital does a lot of stuff, which basically just emulates running through, you know, some really good analog gear. So sometimes it could be as simple as finding a nice piece of analog gear and running it through it. You don't have to, you know, EQ the bejeebies out of it or anything. You can just run it through it and sometimes you'll get really good. That's enough right there. Let me tell you something else where you can get some really good results on a subtle level is panning. But specifically, you know, some motion in your panning. You know, if you if you have something going on and, and you just do a little bit of panning, a little bit of movement to kind of keep it interesting, it it's amazing how it will give your mix a little extra something that people like, what's happening there? And yet at the same time, it it's something as simple as taking something from like, you know, two o'clock and then just slowly on the decay of something going down to like, you know, three o'clock and just letting it widen and just letting it open up and things like that. And a lot of people, you know, they set and forget the pans, right? Okay, this will be at one o'clock, this will be at three, this will be at six, and this, you know. But if you throw a little bit of motion in there, if you make it a little dynamic in there, you can get some really, you know, pleasant results. Now, Warning, <laughs> you can get some really unpleasant results too if you overdo it. But like all these tips that we're given and talking about subtlety, it's, it's sometimes it's just these small little things that can separate um, your mix from other people's mixes and have a really uh, pleasant um, sound out of the whole thing. I find that of the good mixers that I've talked to, this is where they win a lot of their battles. You know, That's what kind of gives them their own unique um, – signature wouldn't you agree bobby that a lot of times it's these little things that kind of add up to the sum of who they are absolutely you know you're talking about panning um i'm finishing up a book it's the second edition of uh deconstructed hits uh classic rock so what i did is i went back and i listened to and I, i i analyzed 20 of the greatest classic rock songs that we've all heard before uh oh 25 or 6 to 4 by oh. chicago uh sweet judy blue eyes uh behind blue eyes by the who and on and on one of the things that absolutely amazed me was the panning they didn't have a lot of effects but they used panning like you wouldn't believe now i'll give you an example sometimes it was really bizarre uh if you listen to 25 or 6 to 4 for instance there are two drum sets two drum kits. One is sort of up the middle, kind of to the left, and the other one is leaning towards the right. But you don't hear that unless you put headphones on. Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, when the drums come in, they're totally to the left. Hmm. They never hit the right. Uh, um, 
Behind Blue Eyes, for instance, uses panning like crazy. And what you find is the bass kind of leans to the left and the drums lean to the right. And there are things like that where there is hard panning. You don't notice it until you listen on headphones. But the big thing is it's always balanced. So if there's something happening on the left, there's um, the exact opposite happening on the right. So it's always balanced, hmm. and even though it may be bizarre. But this I noticed over and over and over in these 20 songs how – the panning was way different than what we're used to today. And it would move, just like, as you were saying. Right. So, for instance, there may be vocals on the left, but then you go to the bridge and all of a sudden they're on the right, the background vocals right. or something like that. And it's, it's really quite fascinating. And, and again, they didn't have a lot of effects. But what they did is they used panning to help their interest. Yeah. Help it's keep a, the interest going. It sounds like they were a lot less... Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, it's like, it sounds like they were a lot less precious about saying, oh, Absolutely. the kick drum and the bass must be straight up the middle. Or right. Else it's, yeah. And right, it wasn't too long after stereo came around, correct? When a lot of these songs well, were recorded. I mean, a, probably what? A lot of them were in the 70s. Yeah. Um, really, pan pots didn't appear on consoles until the mid-60s. And when they first uh, appeared, they were hard left, hard right, and center. So you had nowhere in between to go. But once they appeared, then I think you find a lot of... Uh, you it was know, a new toy. Yeah, it was a new toy. Turn that knob, right? tried, yeah. Well, hey, listen, um, we're going we're gonna to wrap it up. But, you know, I just wanted to just take a moment as we were, you know, talking about all this different mixed stuff. And just, I wanted to concentrate on the subtle. So if you're out there, sometimes it's these little things that, that are going to help you out. It's going to make your mix stand out from somebody else's mix. It's going to make your mix pops. You know, I get a lot of people going, you know, why, why doesn't my mix pop? Why doesn't my mix, you know, and we've all been there, you know, where you're, you're working on a mix and you put it up against, you know, what you hear on the radio or some, you know, and it just, <laughs> it just sounds flat as a board and there's no character to it. Well, sometimes it's some of these little things. These little things all help you. And if you're out there in post or if you're sound designing, you know, some of the stuff that Brandon was talking about. Um, but subtlety. You don't always have to hit them over the head. Well, hey, guys, before we go, um, a couple things that I wanted to talk about. Um, first of all, uh, this is show 150, which is amazing. We're going to do a couple shows this summer. We're going to take a little bit of break in, in August, but um, <laughs> I'm going to take a break next week. I go on vacation. Oh. Woohoo! <laughs> but, um, but then we've got a really great fall um, coming up, and there's some really good things going on. Um, anybody have anything they, they're working on that they want to talk about or uh, can talk about? Well, it's funny we should be talking about mixing because one of the things that I'm doing right now is a coaching course called 101 Mixed Tricks. Wow. Yes, and, and it's 101 Mixed Tricks. <laughs> it's um, a big studio mixed tricks for the small studio. That's awesome. And it's all these things that I've collected over the years, and some are subtle and some of them are really bombastic. And it covers uh, drums and percussion. It covers uh, interest in a song, providing interest in a song. It covers uh, effects, um, you know, just reverbs, delays, modulation. It covers guitars, bass, and and keyboards. And another module is nothing but vocals and background vocals. And yeah. when is that coming out? Hopefully about this time next month. Wow. Yeah. 
That's quick. So I've been working. Well, I've been working on it for a while, actually. Well, it's not so quick then. (laughs) So, Bobby, when you say it's a coaching course, do you mean that people will be asking you questions that you've got videos and stuff all packaged up? There's a video for each mixing trick that goes about 10 minutes or so because there's lots of variations. So, uh, yeah, you pay for the package. Sounds amazing. You got my credit card. (laughs) Hey, man, that is awesome. And and that's that's phenomenal. And there's a hundred of them. 101. 101. Wow. And actually, there's a few others that I'm going to throw in as a bonus as well. Wow. Maybe that's a, 106 or something. That's a lot of content. Yeah. That is a lot. Well, it's, it's 16, almost 17 hours worth. Wow. 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 <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. That's, there's some gold there. Yeah. And I know there's gold there because your friends and the people you hang around with are <laughs> nothing but the best. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, it, it, it really <laughs> comes, comes from a lot of, of great mixers. Uh, I've been writing down their tricks for years. And <laughs> now everybody can, can know what they are. <laughs> that's, that's great. Well, you know what? We'll talk about that on the next podcast. Hopefully it'll, it'll come out by then. Uh, and, you know, we'll, we'll explore it a little bit more. That's, that's really good. Hey, Rob, you working on anything you, you can talk about or do you want to talk about or – yeah, actually, uh, I don't know. When is this show going to post? Do we know? <laughs> <laughs> this year? <laughs> it, it'll, it'll post in about two weeks. About a week. Okay, well then, I'm pleased to have announced something that happened a few days ago. <laughs> uh, it's, not, it's not really a secret, but the, uh, the band that I've been uh, producing in, in Austin called The Misses, uh, dot com. Uh, is going to actually be officially released uh, July 26th, I believe it is. So either you just missed them or you're about to check them out or something. But uh, July 26th is our magic date. They're going to be doing a a very critical live performance and some music is going to start to hit and you're going to start to hear about them. And uh, I have to thank Bobby has been really, really helpful in the time I've been working on this thing with uh, amazing advice. And uh, Mike, I appreciate your help uh, recently on some things. I've definitely pulled in friendship uh, help on this one, and it's been really cool. It's been a very interesting project because as you learn more about them, it's a very interesting story, but these women decided to be a band and have been working their butts off for the last few years, but no one was already sort of an established musician when they did this, and they've just proven what an insane amount of hard work can, uh, can do. So it's a pretty cool project. Hey, it was my pleasure, Rob, and, and let me just put my two cents in. They're going to launch with – the coolest piece that I've seen for a band to launch with in a long time. Yep. I, I'm not going to spill any of the beans, but from uh, from what I saw, it's it's pretty awesome. I and, mean, the, and the music is great, uh, Rob. You know, you're really to be commended for you know what you've done with them because it, it it's great. I mean, it stands up with anything on the radio for sure. Well, thank you very much, and I hope it gets a chance too. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Brandon, what about you? Anything or uh, got a lot of big stuff going on that I can't talk about? But we had a great, uh, great summer or a great beginning of the summer. A lot of big uh, trailers out there. We did a ton of, you know, all the trailers for um, Guardians of the Galaxy and a ton of TV spots. Captain America, Godzilla. We had a lot of big finishes. Yeah. So it was a good summer. Awesome. A lot of good booms and subharmonic <laughs> monsters and, and monsters and stuff. 
Uh, and uh, and I know Nick's been in his studio and the, the crazy lab that that thing is. Been working away in, in the studio. Um, but one thing that I did release that I'm that I think is pretty cool is an app called Star Wars Scene Maker, and it is an app for the iPad in which you go in and there are three Star Wars scenes that comes with it. There's the the Luke and Darth Vader uh, lightsaber duel in the Cloud City, and there's um, the the Death Star trench run, and there is a uh, the, the Ewoks and uh, Han Solo and the Stormtroopers on uh, Endor from the Return of the Jedi. And the idea here is it's basically a three-dimensional rendering system on the iPad where you go and you move the little characters around and you create your own short little sort of vignette kind of story. <laughs> oh, man. Wow, it's neat. Cool. It's neat. And, and you know, for I'm, an audio person... Oh, gone. What were you going to say? No, I'm buying it. That's what it's I'm cool. saying. <laughs> the, the coolest thing that I like the most about it from the audio perspective... Aside from the fact that we got tons and tons of sound effects from the film and music from the film and all of that, is the fact that I was able to design filters. So you go and you record your own vocal through the microphone on the iPad and say, I want it to sound like a stormtrooper. I want it to sound like a rebel pilot or I want it to sound like Darth Vader. And the Darth Vader one, it goes in and it you know pitches it down and boosts up the low end a little bit and then adds the... To it, so it's you know it's it's a fun little thing, and people have been posting YouTube videos all all over the place with it, you know, doing incredibly hilarious stuff with it. So it's been really neat. <laughs> That's awesome. That was really good. And Mike, how about you? Just working on uh, you know mixing the animated series that I mix and uh, just promos and commercials, and did a couple more for Toshiba that will be coming out and. Uh, Basically, just gearing up to go on vacation. Oh boy, lucky you! Um, we're gonna—I'm doing a train trip with the fam and um, going up to uh, Seattle, and uh, I'm packing my uh, Surface and uh, got my 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 riding rig is so cool. It's just gonna be the the Cuneo keyboard with uh, with the Surface, and then I have my um, Razor Edge tablet for my games. And uh, me and my son are gonna, you know, hang out, and it's gonna be fun. And and uh, he's looking forward to playing games on it and stuff. And uh, it'll be really cool. So it's it's gonna be fun. It's gonna be good. Mike, I'm gonna sneak this newfangled thing called a book in your bag. <laughs> hey, hey, I got Kindle software. On here. I've got a book. I've got a couple books on here. It's gonna be chill. And and but you know what? And I don't know if you guys are like this, but when I go on vacation, I get away from work, but I don't stop creating because for me, creating and being creative is like vacation. Sometimes when I want to go to my special little spot, I want to do something creative and I want to build. I, I'm never in a place where I just want to sit and just watch TV Um you know, I take that back. You know, football. I enjoy my football and certain things. But if I go on vacation, I I like creating in a different environment. I like creating on the train. You know, at ten o'clock at night when you know it's inky black and you can't see out there, and so you're sitting in your little room and you have your little thing here, and you're like, oh, let me see what you know, maybe this baseline or something like that. There's a certain amount of, I guess, romance about that, about creating and doing things like that. You know, and and I know I'm I'm not unique because I know creative people have to create. You know, I think they get really, really. I work know. on my vacation, so yeah. Yeah, right. It's like you just you just do it. It's just something you do. You know. So anyhow, all right. Well, hey, I want to thank everybody. Thank you, Rob, for staying up late and being with us. And I also want to thank um, 
we're Christy McConnell, who is uh, the intern with me over where I work. Um, she's uh, she's manning the board. So thank you, Christy. You're doing a great job. And um, thank you, Christy. <laughs> Chrissy, did you move a lot of faders? <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I just want to thank everybody for your uh, your emails and your comments and your questions. And hey, if you have any subtle tips or tricks, you know, post them on our Facebook page. We'll get a little bit more interactive on that, and um, you know, want to. Want to share some of these things because I know we didn't hit them all because apparently there's a hundred and one that are coming out. So um, thanks a lot. If you have any comments or questions, you can reach us at audio at nowcastnetwork.com. That's audio at nowcastnetwork.com. From myself and all the guys, thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. Listening to the Audio Nowcast, sponsored by API and Westwave Audio. The Audio Nowcast is hosted by Mike Rodriguez and uses Aphex's 230 Master Channel Voice Processor. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>